0: Hi, I'm Allison Kulo.
1: Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. There are really two major grocery stores here in the Park City area. We have Smith's on the one hand, which is owned by Kroger, and Fresh Market and Macy's on the other hand, which is owned by Albertsons. Kroger and Albertsons have announced their intent to merge.
0: This merger is valued at $24.6 billion. And Kroger is the biggest U.S. supermarket operator with Albertsons close behind as the second largest chain in the United States. An Albertson-Kroger merger would give the companies a combined share of the United States market in groceries totaling about 17%. The proposed merger is currently under regulatory review. Joining us this morning is Marshall Steinbaum. He's the assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. He's gonna talk with us about the economic impact of the proposed merger and the regulatory process now underway. Marshall, thank you for joining us this morning.
2: Great to be here, thanks for having me.
0: Let's begin by talking about what types of government clearances needed for mergers of this type to take place. What, who do, who do they let know that they're coming together and then what happens from there?
2: It's a great question and actually rather complicated. Uh, So if a merger is as big as this one, um, the parties are required to notify the federal government in advance that this merger is happening and give them certain information that enables them to conduct a uh, antitrust review to see whether the merger would violate the terms of the Clayton Act. That's the federal law governing um, mergers. Um, and the terms of the Clayton Act are actually rather vague at the, in this day and age. So really, what is being reviewed is whether the merger would be illegal under existing uh, case law, whether it would be uh, anti-competitive in the ways that, that, that courts have come to uh, uh, define that, t- that term. So practically, what that means is there's this sort of long wind-up period where the federal government and potentially state attorneys general um, are reviewing the merger in light of the information that's given to them by the merging parties as well as third parties and their own investigation um, and coming to a conclusion about whether they want to challenge it. Um, so there's, we already have two uh, court cases filed against this merger from the attorneys general of uh, Colorado and Washington, saying that it would be anti-competitive in the retail grocery markets in each of those two states. Um, and it's been reported in the media that the FTC, the federal uh, antitrust regulator, um, as well as a number of other state attorneys general are also uh, formulating their own case. Although to my knowledge, that hasn't yet been filed, but it's expected soon. Um, and what that filing of any of those cases means is that the government is, uh, or any of these government uh, entities is under, uh, uh, or believes that the merger will be anti-competitive. But now they have to prove to a court that that's the case. So we have a... Uh, 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 judicial review basically of these regulatory decisions. It's not up to the regulator to unilaterally decide, um, whether the merger is illegal or not. And so the, they bring a case and a court will hear that case and, uh, hear from both the, the, uh, a regulatory entity in the government, as well as the merging parties, and, and adjudicated from there. Um, in the federal courts, the way it works is the the FTC would take such a challenge immediately to try to get a preliminary injunction that basically prevents the merger from closing because the court thinks that there's at least a good enough case behind the FTC's challenge that it's likely enough that there's a high enough probability it would prepare it would prevail under a full. Um, uh, uh, litigation. Um, So kind of round one in the courts is that hearing about the preliminary injunction, which would happen within a couple of weeks or months of the FTC bringing its challenge.
1: And so we have this kind of potentially complicated tableau where we've got a federal case and these state cases. How do they organize themselves so it's not one big mess?
2: <laughs> well, good question. I mean, there's ways of uh, consolidating cases uh, within each of these court systems. There's the, my understanding is that the attorneys general, the two uh, cases brought by the attorneys general, are within the state court system of each of those two states. So those won't be consolidated with any federal case. Um, at least that's that's my uh, strong understanding of this. Um, and consequently, will, there'll be basically three separate processes: one in, Cal- in Washington state court, one in Colorado state court, and then one in the federal court with the FTC and a bunch of other. Or state attorneys general as, as plaintiffs
1: sounds like a lawyer's delight, um, Marshall. Um, in, in recent years, horizontal mega mergers in retail, such as this one, have the focus of the antitrust analysis has been principally on the effect on consumer prices. Um, I guess the theory is that competition is what what sort of presses prices down. What is being said? I, I, I know I want to talk about whether that whether you believe that's the right lens with which to view a merger like this, or the only lens to, to view a merger like this. But before we get to that what 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 is being said now regarding the potential effect of on pricing of a merger like this
2: well both the attorneys general who brought cases have basically said exactly the the case that you just outlined that uh re- competition at the retail level is crucial for keeping retail prices low for consumers and Um, for all of the standard reasons, this mega merger is likely to uh, impede that competition because basically there's only a couple of players in the, or major players in the retail grocery market um, even now. And if they become even more consolidated, then there's lots of cases where, as you described in the intro of the segment in Park City, you know, basically the only game in town is one of the two, uh, 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 or grocery stores affiliated with one of the two chains. And consequently, uh, after the merger, were to close, they would stop competing with each other. So basically one, you know, that that would uh, reduce price competition to a significant degree and You know, it's been shown in other uh, retail contexts and specifically grocery contexts that people don't travel very far to go to the grocery store. So if you've got a town like Park City where there's two grocery stores, one from each chain and they stop competing with one another, that's going to be pretty bad for the people in Park City because it's quite costly to uh, try to go somewhere else to a a remaining independent competitor.
1: And I'm getting this vision as the litigation is prepared to go forward of Lo- maps of the United States where um, the FTC or the state regulators would look locality by locality and try to identify just how many places you'd see an effect like that. Is that how, is part of how this thing proceeds?
2: Yeah. I mean, what you just described is more or less what the economists who work at the FTC do uh, for the last year and a half since this merger was proposed. Um, you know, they look at local markets, see where there's overlap, and then uh, they, you know, We know certain things about the way retail grocery markets work, such that seeing that there's overlap in proximate stores can tell us that these uh, stores are in competition with one another. So then, uh, you know, that's a pretty much the reason why the the uh, merger would be anti-competitive. And then, you know, things get potentially more complicated if you bring into uh bring the question of sort of divestiture remedies into which is on the table in this case so that would say okay well where there's overlap we will divest you know the, the merged entity will divest one of the two stores or, or some share of the overlapping stores so that there's remains a uh independent viable competitor at least that's their claim um and, th- and that is one of the things that the agencies have to take into account now um not just is this merger by itself going to be anti-competitive but I, in my view uh, very uh uh uh, a very bad precedent is that the courts have said they also have to take into account the divestiture remedy that the merging parties propose.
0: And and just to dip into that just a little bit, uh, that's one of the primary claims for Washington State. From my understanding, um, Albertsons and, and Kroger, their overlap is, is more in the western United States. So with regards to Washington and Colorado, as we've mentioned, both those states now have their own um, uh, lawsuits against this. From utah's point of view the um let me back up a sec so anyway one of the ways that they're saying they're going to mitigate this is they're they're saying uh, kroger and albertson's is that well we'll sell so many stores in this territory to cns uh wholesale grocers so within the area of montana utah and wyoming there's only 12. from my understanding in washington there's like 100. i believe they now have like some record of CNS wholesale grocers saying, well, do we even have to keep open all the stores that we're now you know, taking over? So that may not even be close to a solution.
2: Um, the the merging parties have an incentive to propose some sort of divestiture remedy um, because the regulators basically have to knock it down as part of their case for uh, uh, blocking the merger. Um, and that was trying 15 when Albertsons purchased Safeway and uh, basically put forward a divestiture remedy that would uh, have given a lot of the stores in the combined entity to this uh, then small grocer called Hagen in I think that was based in the Pacific Northwest. Um, That divestiture remedy was sufficient to allow the the regulatory approval of the Albertson Safeway merger and the divested entity Hagen basically went bankrupt within a year um, and all those stores closed. And that was a a giant disaster for the grocery industry. Um, So there's sort of a poor track record here. And I would say CNS is similar to Hagen, a pretty weak uh, 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 entity to take on these divested stores. It has a very small footprint already. in retail grocery and one of the sort of tells that you can see that this divestiture remedy is pretextual is that the price that CNS would be paying for the hundreds of stores that Kroger and Albertsons are are divesting is, you know, pretty low Mm -hmm. to the point of even if they go bankrupt, they're going to end up having made money on the deal. Or I should say, even if the stores go out of business, they're going to end up having uh, made money on the deal because the land that they'll get from them basically is worth the price of, uh, of what they're paying. So you can think of this as Kroger has a very strong incentive to get their merger approved. Part of, part of getting their merger approved is putting out a divestiture remedy. They got CNS to kind of sign on to this by saying, look, you can get a ton of uh, valuable assets, all of these stores. From us uh, for cheap, uh, in order that we can kind of hold this up as a reason why the merger won't won't be anti-competitive, um, and so you know I don't think it will have the effect of mitigating any loss of competition from the merger itself.
1: So, Marshall, we've been talking about price competition, and I know some some people have been critical of of the development of antitrust laws and the antitrust jurisprudence over the last thirty years because of the way it sort of has focused principally on consumer impact as opposed to sort of looking at other impacts. I want to talk about uh, your 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 studies about the impact to labor markets from this merger. T- tell us a little bit about your analysis, and why do you think that should be part of the antitrust
2: scrutiny here? Well, competi- competition matters just as much in the labor market uh, for uh, workers' outcomes and wages and, and terms and conditions of work as it does for consumers, and you know, workers are people too, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, so there's no reason why, you know, that you sort of led into this uh, with the premise that uh, uh, analyzing mergers for the effect on labor market competition is somehow novel or an add-on on on top of the usual consumer attention. I think that's an accurate statement about the history of antitrust policy, but there's no reason why that should have been the case. I mean, uh, you know, the, the law basically says that Mergers that are anti competitive or illegal, and mergers can be anti competitive in labor markets just as much as in product markets. Um, so, I wrote a paper about this merger in particular um, and its potential to kind of be a test case uh, for a, a labor uh, theory of harm uh, or a labor market theory of harm uh, stemming from the merger, in part because we have this track record of past mergers uh, uh, in retail grocery leading to poor. Um, outcomes for workers and in part because I think some of the most uh, acutely affected retail markets um, are also the most acutely affected labor markets. So you can tell where the kind of resistance to the merger among uh, labor unions is most acute is exactly where there remains some competition between Kroger and Albertson's at the bargaining table um, when workers are neg- and, and their representative unions are negotiating for new contracts and I think the unions who uh, look at this merger and see their you know, kind of main source of leverage disappearing um, if, bas- if the uh, uh, entities that they are, have been negotiating with to date and had previously played off against one another are now combined and, and there's no sort of leverage there to be had. Uh,
1: Marshall, I, think I, I I see where you're going, and I think we need to take it down one level. Let's talk about, let, let's do a hypothetical Park City, okay? What is it that, that they are now able to do, because we've got two separate owners, and I don't know whether the Park City are unionized or not, let's, let's, let's assume they are for the purpose of the discussion. What are they able, able to do now? Why is it that the existence of this competition facilitates the union's ability to negotiate a better contract?
2: Well, I would say that labor competition takes a number of different forms. So there, there are uh, anti-competitive aspects of the merger, whether you're talking about unions at the bargaining table or you're talking about individual workers looking for another job. Um, so one thing that uh, we found with the paper is that looking at the period of the pandemic when uh, there was a lot of churn in the retail grocery labor market and you saw you know big sa- signs outside yes. all the stores saying we're hiring now. Um, that was an occasion of of strong uh, uh, wage growth for workers at, at Kroger, and particularly for workers at Kroger where there were Albertsons in where there was Albertsons locations in the same labor market. Um, and my interpretation of that is basically Albertsons is like a slightly better employer than Kroger. I would say you know these are all pretty low wage employers, but the idea that workers could leave Kroger and go to Albertsons because Albertsons is hiring is putting pressure on Kroger to raise labor standards in order to retain workers and be able to keep the doors open and the lights on. Um, Um, So in a world where they're both part of the same company, there's no opportunity for workers to take advantage of the opportunity of the store across town having a a help wanted sign in the window um, and uh, uh, go take those jobs and consequently no pressure on their incumbent employer to to raise their terms and conditions of work. Um, At the bargaining table, uh, you know, we have uh, examples of basically, uh, you know, unions negotiating the two parties against one another, and if one of them uh, uh, doesn't want to agree to a better contract, to basically go strike that one and have both consumers and, and pick at the stores, so the consumers switch to the uh, grocery competitor, and also workers take a job um, at the other store. And so this was very clearly demonstrated in the Colorado Attorney General's uh, uh, lawsuit against the merger. Um, he. Uh, brought forward evidence of a no-hire agreement between Kroger and Albertsons during a strike at the Kroger affiliate in um, uh, in Colorado a couple of years ago, where basically the CEOs of the two firms were like, "Yeah, don't hire our workers while they're on strike," because you know the implication being if they don't ha- if they're not able to go get another job, the strike won't last as long, and they'll have to come back to work because they'll need. Their job in order to um, to feed their families. So this idea of like, (laughs) you know, that that was pretty smoking gun, pretty much a smoking gun evidence that the two firms compete in the labor market, and in particular during strikes, the ability to supply labor to the competitor um, is a way that uh, striking uh, or, or that a strike by a union against a recalcitrant employer would succeed.
1: For those in our audience who are staring at their radios, I'm sure they're asking the
2: question: Isn't that illegal? <laughs> oh yeah, the no-hire agreement is definitely illegal. Yeah, and and uh, uh, the Colorado Attorney General is seeking uh, penalties for that, uh, criminal penalties for that. I hope. I mean, I, certainly, I don't. Uh, um, you know, they're suing to stop the merger, but they're saying that the the entities should uh, that the the merging parties should basically face liability for violating Colorado law for that no-hire agreement. I mean, I've studied no-hire agreements in other <laughs> contexts as well. That was a pretty extreme one, um, uh, but they're actually way more common in the economy than uh, than you might think, notwithstanding that they are illegal.
1: I, I, I have this vision of the young lawyer who is tasked to review the documents, finding this piece of paper on behalf of the Attorney General, jumping up and saying, Eureka!
2: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that that right, I, I'm not, I, I'm I'm one step removed from that myself, having written the paper saying that this merger would uh, uh, weaken uh, uh, workers' leverage at the bargaining table and then seeing those documents, I, I pretty much had a similar reaction as a uh, a a researcher, if not a law enforcement officer.
0: So as we've been talking about this merger, but even without the merger, there's just four companies, Kroger, Walmart, Costco, and then, um, I don't know how to say the other one. Uh, Del Hayes? Yes, Del Hays. Currently controls 65% of the grocery market. How did this occur? Um, Because, you know, you're just looking at all this scrutiny that's happening with Albertsons and Kroger. How did we get to the point where, four companies control 65%?
2: Yeah, great question. I mean, this is basically a long, sad story as far as I'm concerned of American economic history. Um, in 1965, the Department of Justice challenged the merger of uh, Vons with Safeway. I think mm-hmm. it was uh, maybe a, a smaller uh, firm. So that would have been a 10 to nine grocery merger in one market, the Los Angeles market. Um, and the DOJ won that case at the Supreme Court. That was probably the most uh, aggressive um, or, or you know, pro-enforcement uh, merger decision that the Supreme Court has ever made, um, and you know, is widely viewed as basically saying pretty much any horizontal merger is illegal if there's any overlap. You know, if the if the two parties that are merging have any pre-ex ante competition at all, um, then a merger's uh, likely to violate the Clayton Act. Um, and you know, I think that was a pretty good decision. It's widely derided by uh, uh, antitrust scholars and 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 you know, practitioners. Um, ever since the '60s, because you know, supposedly this merger was, uh, you know, uh, uh, not really uh, threatening, but um, uh, you know, and would have, you know, the, the claim was basically that that consolidating or gr- growing uh, uh, would enhance efficiency and bring make uh, uh, better technologies available to more consumers, and blah blah blah, the usual, the usual story. Um, and you know even pretty much from 1965 that that decision represented uh, a high point in horizontal merger enforcement that we've been retreating from ever since so um, in if you look at uh, for example in the early 1980s when uh, President Reagan took over I uh, there's uh, you know he put a bunch of um, uh, antitrust scholars in charge of the DOJ and, and the FTC who, who openly derided this decision said it was wrongly decided there's been interesting scholarship in the last couple of years to the you know basically showing that the diversity between what they said in Congress when they were um, uh, you know when their appointments were uh, under consideration uh, for approval or for uh, confirmation in the Senate versus what they were saying privately Um, and you know they basically said oh yes we support the antitrust laws when they were in public and we're gonna do everything we can to overturn these precedents and make antitrust enforcement more lax in private. Um, and they got what they wanted. I mean, we basically got a much more lax policy, especially well in, in all aspects of anti of uh, of antitrust enforcement, uh, horizontal mergers among them, and consequently a lot more uh, consolidation in the economy. Um, and I think that's been very bad for uh, for u s. consumers, for workers and and for the economy overall. And I think part of the um, uh, uh, retail price inflation that we've seen in the last couple of years is, is due to that, uh, one of many uh, ne- uh, uh, nefarious causes of that policy revolution.
1: If the FTC brings an enforcement action, where would they do that?
2: Um, that's a good question. So the FTC will will has to litigate in federal court. I don't know exactly which district they'll they will or want to litigate in. I think I think there's a number of options. I mean, basically, since they're national chains, they could probably choose to, to litigate uh, in any uh, uh, jurisdiction in which the merger would potentially have an anti-competitive effect. Well, um, I I well, so so the way I mean the, to go back to the sort of procedural question, they'll try to get the preliminary injunction in federal district court um, right away, and then litigate first. So if they're granted that preliminary injunction, or even really if not. But um, the next step is basically to, to litigate in the FTC's internal court. That's the administrative law judge. I think I think that's the way it would work. I, I guess this is not my area of expertise, so I should say I'm not 100 certain about this. Um, that's that's where the first round of the trials would be heard, and then it kind of could proceed back into federal court um, uh, uh, if things go from there.
1: Yeah, where, where I was going, Marshall, was I was just curious as to whether the sort of consideration of, of things like labor impact. Whether there was, a, you know, a jurisdiction where they might be more likely for that to get some traction, and even at the FTC level, is is is, is this current FTC under Lena Khan likely to be more open to having a more direct consideration of labor impact uh, in addition to price impact? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think
2: every indication is that they are very open to that. Whether they want to kind of take that beast on as part of this case, uh, you know, remains to be seen. I'm, I'm very curious about it myself, but they, they clearly are very interested in labor market.
1: Yeah, it looks like an interesting case to do that with. We've been speaking with Marshall Steinbaum about the Kroger-Albertson merger. Uh, Marshall, we we always enjoy our conversations with you. I am sure we'll find it another reason to get you back on soon. Thanks for spending time with us.
2: Of course, it's my pleasure. Great talking to you.
0: The Academy Awards on Sunday, March 10th will honor the best films of 2024. Highly coveted, receiving that honor is not left to chance. Each year, millions of dollars and publicist hours are dedicated to securing an award win. Joining us this morning is Richard Rushfield, Editorial Director and Chief Columnist of The Ankler. Richard helps uncover the tactics and amount studios and producers spend along the campaign trail to capture an Academy award Richard thank you for joining us this morning
3: Thanks so much for having me
0: let's step, set the stage what is the history of Oscar campaigns and who funds these campaigns
3: Oh gosh well it goes back to you know way back uh, I, I think they're in their 90 th- something year, they the Oscars were were started as a way basically to distract uh, workers from from demanding more pay. They thought they <laughs> they thought they'd throw out uh, these these awards and it worked very well uh, it, and diffuse sort of labor tension. But the modern Oscar period really dates back to to Miramax film and Harvey Weinstein who uh, realized that he can mount these very aggressive campaign. It was it was sort of a sleepy little thing they would they would maybe have a dinner for the for the academy uh and, and get people excited but when miramax came along they mounted these very aggressive campaigns with with huge amounts of spending um for for them to promote as a way to promote their films
1: so let's take it back a step uh the the oscars are obviously very prestigious can you explain to us who votes the process who's being lobbied here and the process by which a film is first nominated and ultimately selected for the envelope please
3: yeah well f- first of all to if, if you're going to be nominated you have to have a it, you you don't it, it's not required by the rules but um having a uh distributor that mounts a campaign for you and that means putting on lots of events lots of screenings getting members of the Academy to see your your movies. Um so the Academy is about ten thousand people um spread across now much more international than it used, used to be. But they're are people who are supposedly distinguished in the in in film and have some some history in the, the film world and they're divided into branches. Um, the 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 publicist branch they have the the documentarian branch, the actors, the directors. Um, for the nominations each branch nominates its own people, so the branches are relatively small. The do, the, the documentarians, for instance, is, is just just about 150 people, I think. So the, the the popularity and relationships within that branch definitely enter into that. Um, the acting branch is much is, is is much bigger, and then when it comes and then after after the nominations come the entire Academy votes. So this intense pressure uh, mounts attempting to get the votes of these 10,000 people for the, for the big awards.
0: So, um, just understanding right now, can you confirm you actually need to campaign even just to get a nomination? Technically
3: you don't, there's no rule that says you have to campaign. The fact of the matter is that people that don't campaign don't get nominated and, and certainly don't win and people that don't, and people whose their studio doesn't mount a a campaign and then and, and spend money buying ads and everything for them uh tend not to win either there's there there there's some i think every everywhere everything uh all at once they they, they didn't buy ads of that, but they were certainly on the campaign trail meeting people and it's it's really a it's a long the it's a long campaign the the the, the oscar season technically kicks off in uh, at, at, with Toronto Film Festival in, at the beginning of September, so it's a six month set or seven month long season, depending on how, how long this goes, and you have lots of events where the people are, are trying to, uh, where the, the, the contenders are trying to meet as many members of the Academy as they can, and constant screenings and Q&As and dinners and everything else.
0: And I, I, have to assume there's an ROI for this. Like, you know, it, it, the amount of time that that is spent on this, get, just getting the nomination up to actually receiving an award. Does it really make that difference? Well,
3: yeah. It's for for independent films now. This is really how you um, how you market them. This is the, the, this is really the for, for the the smaller serious dramas. Um, the, the, the Oscar circuit and the prestige circuit is is where they uh, is, is where they get their name out you look at a movie like poor things and we, we've seen in the last few years a lot of independent films just come and go just are released and and forgotten um, and barely make as much Poor things which has which has been a real contender and has a lot of nominations Emma Stone is considered a, a favorite for the best actress uh, has made nearly a hundred million dollars. Uh, Worldwide, that's that's a movie that's gotten real um, attention, and uh, you 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 would imagine if it had if it didn't have these nominations, if it had been passed over for for nominations, it it would have uh, it, it it wouldn't have. You look at uh, Zone of Interest, which is a very intense, dark film about the Holocaust, uh, which was surprisingly nominated, and and that has that has had a real life and gotten a lot of real attention but also thanks to its nomination you know for bigger movies like for barbie it's it's a nice thing it it just doesn't really matter Uh, but for these independent films it's sort of the whole ball game now
2: let's
1: go back to sort of the origins of the modern campaign and eventually i want to get to the academy's role as the equivalent of the federal election commission in terms of regulating how these campaigns work but but first i want to go back to harvey weinstein and the insight that he had about leveraging prestige in an effort to um pay
3: people less <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean he saw he saw that um that uh, for independent films he was looking for, he had these 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 little dramatic movies and he was looking for ways to break it through and he and and uh, captured the attention of a larger public and he saw that if you if you're an awards favorite if you have lots of academy award nominations that you could really turn that into a uh a, a groundswell that could that could uh get a lot of audience and another thing it does is if and this certainly worked for for harvey um if you if your films regularly get get your people a lot of academy award nominations and people want to work with you they want to they want to come and be in your films because it puts them on the uh, on the short list to be a contender there so um, so it, 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 it is sort of if you're if you're in that circuit it's it has a lot of a lot of benefits for you so, so what were some of the tactics that Weinstein originated in this world well the, the I mean he was just very he was advertising for the films like nobody uh, ever did he, w- and he would he would he went after the precursor award like the, the Golden Globes um, were are sort of a, a sleepy little pre-Oscar um, uh, stop, and he made this a real like he, he said we will we'll dominate the Golden Globe Awards, and then we'll establish that as like that is the thing that predicts the Oscars, and he really put that on the map. He he just, he, he turned this from a sort of sleepy little thing bit to to organized you know a. a Six months of screenings and dinners and events, and you have to have an, and, you, and having a narrative about your uh, about your filmmaker that you tell and a story. Um, they 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 said they accused him at the time of uh, of, of bad mouthing uh, negative campaigning against other contenders. Uh, and but but they, they, these really charged uh, charged and personal campaigns that he would mount.
0: So you talked uh, originally about having about 10,000 people within the Academy who are voting, but that they go into kind of the subcultures. How many people, you know, for best picture are are they actually trying to to campaign to who are that they're lobbying towards?
3: I mean, you're, 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 you're when you you when when you get the, the best picture is the one thing that's nominated by everybody. So you have the, so the whole Academy is is Up for grabs there. It can have as many as ten pictures nominated. So, in theory, you don't need more than a thousand, fifteen hundred votes to get uh, to to get a nomination there. To win, you uh, need—no one knows exactly—but but 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 it would seem a a few thousand, at least, votes of the uh, of the Academy.
1: So, so let's talk a little bit more about mechanics, and then I want to get into regulation. at one point, I think that uh, I think academy members would would used to get like DVDs of screeners. H- how can they access the films now? Do they still have those DVDs, or do they actually have to go see a screening
3: somewhere to have access? they They have gotten rid mostly of the DVD and replaced them with a screening site. So there's a special academy screening site that that every member um, can log into, and that uh, that all the contenders are uploaded on. The, the Academy says they they would like everybody to see them on the big screen and they have lots of public screenings, and events that uh, uh, that 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 host them. But uh, the the fact is that a lot of these movies I think end up be, being watched on the on the Academy site.
1: And so let's talk a little bit about rules. Um, obviously, when something like this happens, it it probably created a sort of a, a major. Uh, eyebrow raise, if you will, among the studios. We've got Harvey Weinstein out there running these campaigns. We obviously can't get left behind in an arms race. To what extent has the uh, academy tried to put regulations around these campaigns, and have they been effective?
3: You know, they're constantly trying to trying to put regulations on and trying to say, I, th- I think they have a rule now about um, you can you, you can't have a party for a A movie unless you're showing the movie, you can't just have an event in, in honor of it they're they're always trying to tweak the rules and they ne- they never they never give up and it and every time they tweak it, it takes these studios about five minutes to figure out their way to work, work around it but uh, they they try again next year the, the The big thing that they they really try to enforce is the no negative campaigning rule that they, that you're not allowed to say. You or anybody involved in your film isn't allowed to publicly um, criticize um, any of the other contenders, and they 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 they're very serious about that. And they they've never disqualified someone, but they they definitely scold when people uh, go foul of that.
1: I, I would be shocked if that was something that Harvey Weinstein was accused of. Um, but <laughs> but but are there are there like noteworthy examples of people running sort of secret or not so secret negative campaigns?
3: There's always so so when contenders pop up, there's always things that appear in the press. There's always there are the stories that appear about um, you know I think I, I forget. Uh, so so Green, Green Book when that yes. movie popped up uh, surges, started to surge. You uh, you suddenly these stories came out about its director and offensive things he had said in the past were were suddenly resurfaced right after it won the Golden Globe. And there was a lot of whispers about, about, about how did that story come up and who planted that and how did it, you know, never been proven. But, mm-hmm. uh, but, but that's one example of, like, when, it, when, it, when a movie starts to surge, suddenly negative stories about it will are likely to appear. And,
1: and given the prestige of your own website, of The Ankler, uh, do you occasionally find somewhat anonymous attempts to uh, create tidbits, the, uh, negative tidbits for you to follow up on?
3: <laughs> the uh, people are, you know, when you, when you work in Hollywood, uh, the press, all you do all day is you get calls about people saying, well, you should write about how <laughs> this person did that, did that, they're terrible, everybody hates them, and everybody, <laughs> that, that, that's kind of the, uh, the, 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 the world you swim in, and you try to sort out what's genuinely of a public interest and, and interesting from, uh, from just people uh, uh, the bad-mouthing each other.
0: So with this year's campaign, 2024, what are you, what are you seeing? What are some of those movies that are pushing hard?
3: Well, you have, so Oppenheimer seems to be the the favorite right now. It's been sweeping all the precursor awards that they, they talk about. The, the, uh, they just had the, uh, the SAG awards last night. Um, and the producer, this weekend, the producer guild award, the BAFTA, the British awards. So all the things that sort of are indicators of, of uh where the oscar would go sort of in show that oppenheimer is a heavy favorite right now um in as the sort of contenders you have um you have you have zone of interest that i, that I mentioned mm-hmm. poor things um and uh you know the, also american fiction is another one that uh that has been cited as a possible dark horse but um <laughs> it's it's uh it Either any of those would be a real surprise if they were if they were able to uh, unseat Oppenheimer at this point.
1: So if you're Oppenheimer and you're you know you're you're sitting pretty, you're sitting fairly pretty in the sense of being favored. Um, are you still going to spend the money to run a campaign? Are you still going to be throwing the dinners and the lectures just to maintain your position?
3: Absolutely. Well, you're spending the money because should you lose, you don't want your filmmaker saying uh, I lost because. Yes because my my damn studio refused to spend the money so you uh you so you're you're, you're spending it to just check every box and, and and leave no stone unturned um and christopher nolan has uh has, has sort of been in contention before and and, and fallen short so i think I, I i think there's a real sense that they want to get this for him
1: uh w- w- I, I sort of talked a little bit about your website and uh, your your newsletter the ankler can you just i, w- I want to ask you a couple more questions but i do want to give you a chance to explain to our audience what it is you do
3: yeah we we i, I read an uh i read a column for a uh, larger newsletter called the ankler uh which is uh about the entertainment industry it's re- it's primarily for entertainment uh industry professionals but also people who are very interested in how the industry works and sort of the culture of the industry and uh, we cover this every day
1: so you're deeply immersed in this world and i, I can't l- let you go without asking a couple more sort of oscar questions uh, i know you have your crystal ball on your desk um let's start with what is the most surprising major award you expect to come out this year who's go- who's going to win that nobody's seen seeing it
3: coming uh well uh <laughs> if nobody sees it coming that's probably uh, I, I could see Lily Gladstone winning the Best Actress, uh, taking away from Emma Stone there. That's, that, uh, that, 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 that part sort of affected a lot of people. She's from Killers of Flower Moon. Um, and she'd be the first uh, Native American Best Actor winner, I believe. Um, and and uh, I, I think that story is very powerful. To, uh, I, I don't know if I'd put money on it, but I could see it happening.
1: OK, and um, your favorites for the Big Four uh le- leaving aside my upset question what are your favorites for the big
3: four uh the, so so oppenheimer will, will will win best picture yeah mm-hmm. and uh and then so so will Nolan
1: just, get the director's spot
3: piece yeah i okay. think you will it's okay. uh it could, could be an upset but it's it's looking it's looking very unlikely and uh i would I, despite the possibility of lily, lily gladstone uh, upset i'd still say emma stone for yeah. uh for best uh, uh for for best actress and then uh i'm i'm gonna put my money on paul giamatti for from the holdovers for best actor but uh instead of chilean murphy from from oppenheimer but could be wrong
1: Absolutely, uh, I, I, I really appreciate you spending the time with us, and we really appreciate the fact that uh, you and Ankler have been willing to talk to us about other Hollywood topics. And we hope to be able to continue to bring you on in the future. Um, my
3: pleasure. I love my trips to Park City every year. So, <laughs> all
1: right. Well, the next time you're in town, maybe we can get you live in the studio. We've been talking. I'd love to. We've been talking to Richard Rushfield, the editorial director, founder, and chief columnist. Dan.
0: High Top HR provides fractional human resource services tailored to your organization's needs. From talent acquisition and performance management to employee training and development, owner Sharon Salmon provides expert guidance and solutions to optimize your workforce. Joining us this morning to share more about High Top HR is Sharon Salmon. Sharon, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. What a beautiful view. Yes, not a bad place to start the the week on a Monday morning. Let's begin. What does... Uh, Does the scope of human resources cover just you know We always hear hear the term, but can you just give us a background on what does that cover and? How that term is now moving more towards people operations? Yeah, uh, this is an interesting one Sometimes it makes me
4: think of the X and Twitter situation Um, HR is the umbrella Word that encompasses all the functional pieces of taking care of the people that work for the organization. And then people operations was actually coined by a director of Google to, and his name was uh, Laszlo Bach. And he actually wanted to bring the idea of how do we think about the strategic piece of the workers and how they actually work with the organization, not just payroll not just administrative pieces but really how does it all functionally work together and help the employee feel like they're a part of that how do they feel like it's you know a holistic piece
1: so it's a more relational concept as opposed to the mechanics of of you know payroll and 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 medical and those kinds of things
4: exactly It's, it's giving it a holistic human touch essentially so
1: high top provides what, what, what this is a really interesting concept fractional people operations of course that makes me think of people divided into pieces and i don't think that's <laughs> what it means
4: yeah no it's interesting because it, it kind of is that mm-hmm. um a lot of organizations do not have the resources um or the staffing to actually get the type of experience that I have. And so I come in on a part-time fractional basis. Uh, I would step in sometimes as the lead person in that role and help them build out the team. Then I step away. I might help them if they have a junior person that stepped into the HR role and I just act as the advisor. So it takes that off the a C-suite's shoulders. Um, so I kind of step
0: in as a more, yeah, Piece, piece of the organization, and I would assume that a fractional uh, service that you provide is actually something more amenable for small businesses. You know, you think I don't have a, a full time position for HR. I only have a ten person operation. Exactly, and and a place like this, you know, a
4: person with my my experience is going to ask for anywhere from eighty 000 to two hundred thousand dollars a year, and a small business may need that kind of support because they're intending to grow but you know you could get fractional support for 20,000 sometimes 10, sometimes 30, depending on, you know, hey, help us build this one piece out or help us with staffing for this next season, whatever the thing is.
1: So it's it's almost kind of like HR consulting, I take
4: it. It's HR consulting, but HR consultants will come in, do the full audit. They want to kind of really, and I am an HR consultant, but I'll, I'll come in quickly sometimes and just help with like those ad hoc needs.
1: So the distinction is between HR consulting would be conceived of as more of a project Uh, oriented concept versus this is an ongoing support process. It's sort of outsourcing a piece of your organization for ongoing HR support.
4: Exactly. And I do both. So I do the consulting um, short term and I come in and just do those hits and work on a project. It might be a compensation analysis
0: or something like that, but uh, fractional is where where I love. I assume that most people find you because they have a need. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Something went wrong. What often is the call that you get um, when people are introduced to your service? It's
4: so funny you ask. I mean, here it could be different than in LA. It could be different than in San Francisco. But um, in California, it's going to be high compliance. And in Utah, it's going to be more about staffing and employee engagement and keeping people. And, oh, we have an employee that, you know, isn't showing up. Um, do we need to ask for doctor notes? Uh, you know, it's, it's more of that day to day, how, how do we take care of our employees? But I don't want to take care of it.
1: <laughs> and what, what do you find are the biggest or mo- most common, uh, HR mistakes that small businesses make?
4: Oh, it's not checking in with employees more often than they should. So you know that there's a disgruntled employee or a manager is maybe a little too heavy-handed or some issues happening and you're just not paying attention and checking in and that creates a lot of issues. You'd be surprised with people then uh, not showing up or people... um, you know, stealing from the organization. And there's so many different things. But that basically is the one that I see where organizations start to have to mediate arbitration,
0: things like that once a person leaves. Now, as you mentioned, you know, uh, the question was, you know, what should businesses, I think, be spending more time on? I guess looking at it from another way, what types of HR services do you provide that? would ultimately help businesses um, you know that that maybe they that they should take greater advantage of I think
4: starting with the benefits and payroll and systems putting in place really easy and there's so many out there now the easy software tools that the small business owner does not have to every day think about all the pieces of the puzzle it's just kind of plug and play. And so they have more time to focus on the employees. So it used to be that you had one for payroll, one for performance management, one for benefits. And now there's these integrated systems. So building something out early on and finding the right tool, training your employees on it, making sure then after that, you're working with the managers that oversee the employees or yourself on how to make people feel like they're engaged, um, not just hey, show up at eight, leave at five. We did a good job high five, um, letting people know, hey, there's a place for you that's long term. And if it's seasonal, we did a really good job this year, we'd love to see you next year. This is what we'll give you if you come back.
1: I have an offbeat question. For yeah. you. Um, When you go to gatherings of HR professionals, um, what is the story that you tell them that says, I had this gig and I can't believe these people were doing this.
4: (laughs) This is hilarious. So I do go to HR conferences and this is, it's kind of like this cathartic thing because you're finally in a room with people that you can kind of vent to Mm -hmm. and you can't do that in an organization. You have to really hold your head up high. So you will laugh about, an employee, I use this one a lot, but an employee urinating in a elevator um, and then denying they did it, but the cameras caught them um, and it was a a hospitality group. So they were drinking at the bar. Um, So those kind of things where you go, can you believe that happened? And the person just went to the edge of the earth denying, even though you show them the video. Um, There's so many stories like that, that are just hilarious that would kind of go, can you believe that happened?
0: And we all have them. You mentioned a couple of times since you've been here, the word hospitality and the types of business that that we have in the community. Being in Park City, do you have experience with hospitality businesses or or what types of businesses do you have backgrounds in?
4: Yeah, I started in San Francisco actually. I worked for a restaurant consulting firm and I've opened a lot of Michelin restaurants. Um, And so a big part of what I did was uh, working in that field especially um fine dining and then it moved into uh fast casual. So, yeah.
1: Okay, Shannon, if people want to learn more about your organization, how can they find
4: you? I am at hightophr.com, so h i g h uh
0: hightophr.com. Sharon Sammon, we've enjoyed having you here on Mountain Money. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. If you like Mountain Money, let us know. Please leave a review.